1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in the darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for the helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Let us pray. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Grant us clarity this morning. Grant us understanding. Grant us faith to trust in your promises. In Jesus' name, amen. Confusion brings about confidence and calmness. When was the last time you were driving somewhere, your husband was lost and confused, didn't admit it, and in the midst of staring at his confusion, you were still confident and calm? Probably no one. About 10 years ago, I was traveling up to Pickerel Lake Lutheran Bible Camp late at night with some young high school boys. We had a trailer hooked up to a suburban, and we were going to go and do a, a volleyball court. We had a rototiller in the trailer, and our hope was to get there about midnight and then rototill throughout the night so in the morning we could work on putting the sand back in the volleyball court. We started up on the, on the journey, and I had driven that path I don't know how many times. Well, recently, before that, I learned of a new uh, shortcut to camp from a person that's got a cabin on the lake. So I thought, hey, this cut's like 20 minutes. We'll take the, the shortcut. So take the shortcut. I'm like, yeah, first pavement, keep going, then the another pavement, and then it's the gravel, da-da-da-da. We're on the gravel, but on the gravel for 20 minutes, and I'm thinking to myself, this doesn't seem right. I used to churn off of this gravel onto another gravel, and then that gravel takes you right to the lake. We should be to the lake at this point. Well, the high school boys in the back are just fooling around, whatever. They don't know, but after a little while, they begin to ask, hey, are we there yet? No, hey, when are we going to be there? We, we got work to do. You know, a little bit while longer. Hey, you have no clue where you are. Hey, you're an idiot. How about letting me drive for a little while? You see, confusion was beginning to abound, and there was no confidence in the car. Even myself was beginning to lose confidence, even though I knew where we were the whole time. 
In the midst of confusion, in the midst of confusion, the destination gets really blurry. This morning, there's plenty of confusion in our culture and in the world around us. And rightfully so. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of circumstances that cause someone to say, where's God? There's a lot of circumstances that cause someone to say, I don't see that in the book. There's a lot of circumstances that would cause lots of confusion. And confusion does not bring about confidence and clarity. Yet, as God's people, we're encouraged to wait with confidence and clarity, confidence and calmness. I would contend this morning that one of the main reasons we don't have confidence and calmness is because for the most part we've got confusion about what's going on in the world around us and we've got confusion about what is the end game. How many people are running around right now going, oh, everything's going to be okay. It's all going to work out good. The best is yet to come. Very, very few because there's lots of confusion. In the church, we call this end times, the stuff that's going on around us. We, we, it's a phrase we use to describe when things are escalating, evil is starting to go uh, rampant, lawlessness is starting to invade different countries. The, the Bible and the church calls this end times. We've done that for a couple hundred thousands of years. Well, this end times stuff is a little bit goofy, and it gets a little bit crazy sometimes. And usually when we talk about the end times, people are in one of two camps. They're either obsessed with it, they read a lot about it, they spend a lot of energy into it, they're worried about it and thinking about it. There's another camp of people that are just completely apathetic to the whole end times discussion. They're like, why are you even talking about that? That's for the religious freak show. That stuff is weird. So both extremes have dangers. The apathetic extreme's danger is this. You're ignoring the greatest hope of the Christian. You're also ignoring a majority of the Bible. This extreme over here, you're causing a lot of problems in our world. You're causing a lot of problems in churches by just billowing up the smoke and creating more confusion and more chaos. So where can we find some clarity? My hope today is that we can find some clarity around this issue of the end times. Today's going to maybe feel a little more like a seminary classroom for a few moments. But the goal is clarity and understanding. Well, why is this important? First, this is important because it's in the Bible. And it's not just one verse in the Bible. This fills multiple books, multiple chapters, hundreds if not thousands of verses, sentences written on this issue of the end times. It's in the Bible. We want to be faithful to God. God has given us the Bible, the written word, to form our thinking. Therefore, if we want to be faithful to God, we've got to seek to understand the Scriptures. That's what He's made known to us. So it's in the Bible. The second reason why it's important, and maybe most importantly above all, is this. The end times is our greatest hope as Christians. This might sound really weird to say. The end times is the greatest hope for the Christian. The greatest hope for the Christian is not death and going to heaven. This is a major misnomer. The idea that we die and then we float off into a cloud and we're in heaven combining or we're in heaven golfing. It's simply not true. We do not die and go to some magical heaven right now and farm or do whatever we like the most. Our end place that we're going to be for eternity 
is, is not even fully formed yet. Our greatest hope as Christians is the end times. Our greatest hope is that Jesus Christ will return, wipe out all evil, and establish a kingdom of peace and joy that will live on everlasting with brand new bodies that will not decay, brand new bodies that will not need reading glasses. How does that sound? That is our end hope, that Jesus returns. Therefore, we should study it. We should seek to know it. We should seek to have our minds set on it. The other reason that it's important to talk about the end times is so that our sights are set on the biblical view. So many of us have got our energy and our sights set on things that have been shaped by culture, church, and politics. And then we expend our energy, our finances, and our time in that area. I've never, and I've never, you're not supposed to use absolutes, but I can use an absolute because I've never had a person come up to me and say, Pastor, I've just got all this extra energy and mind thought and emotional energy and financial resources that I'd like to spend some more time dwelling on the end times a little bit to take up some more energy of mine so I could exude more of that freeness, freeness that I have. Nobody's got that. Everybody's what? Overloaded with stuff. Well, maybe we can get some clarity so we don't have to spend time dwelling upon that which is unknown and we can have confidence in that which is known. We want to set our mind, our energy, our passions on the known promises of God, on the biblical revelation. So how should we go about the study of the end times? There's three things I want to encourage you to be mindful of as we talk about the end times. First is this. You're white, most of you, and you're from South Dakota. Okay, that has a big implication on how you think about things. You think vastly different than the person that has grown up in the middle of China or Japan. You see the world vastly different. When you hear a word, you hear something and someone hears the same word in a different culture, in a different country. We've been formed by our culture. Not a bad thing, not a good thing, reality. Everybody in every culture has been formed by that. So we have to know that we go in with what? Cultural prejudices. So we say, for example, right now, we say, hey, it's starting to get kind of bad. The tribulation must be coming. When we say that, we offend two-thirds of the Christian world. Because two-thirds of the Christian world says, where have you been? Where were you when my parents were slaughtered? Where were you when I lost my baby? Because they didn't want any more Christian kids growing up in our society. So we bring a prejudice that it's really not that bad yet. It's getting worse. When other parts of Christendom are going, hey, what are you talking about? You're waiting for the tribulation. It's here. So we bring a cultural prejudice. We've got to recognize that. The second thing we have to recognize is this. Interpretation of God's word is difficult work. It's not always what it says, but we're about what it means. Two vastly different things. So, for example, yesterday I was having lunch with my daughter. Thing, My wife comes out and says, hey, the babysitter is coming over a little after lunch. And our daughter was really excited for this babysitter to come over. So what does our daughter do? Stops eating lunch. Because what? When lunch is over, the babysitter's coming. Okay, a little while after lunch does not mean the moment you stop eating lunch, the babysitter's coming over. We, we know what it means when I say, hey, I'll be there in a second. 
I'm not going to literally be there in one second. I'm going to be there as quick as I can. And when we read the Bible, the Bible's written in human language, in human forms, so that humans can understand. Therefore, it's written in ways that you and I speak and teach one another. We use words to teach something when maybe it's not literally what that word says. I don't want to create any doubt this morning about the truth of the Bible. But the truth of the Bible is found in what it teaches. We've got to be very careful and understand the difficulty of interpreting God's Word. We're going for the meaning. So, understand our cultural bias, understand the interpretation of God's Word is difficult. And then third, understand that God's desire is not that you and I spend boundless hours and energy in speculation. Actually, I would contend this. It's against the will of God that you and I spend time in speculation about the timing of Jesus' return. Why? Jesus doesn't even know the time of his return. Okay, if Jesus does not even know when he's going to return, what's the point on us having a committee meeting about when Jesus is going to return? You're not going to get anywhere. There's nowhere to get. We're not created to have speculation. We're created to know the known and get on with what we've been told to get on with. Don't get lost in endless speculation, dwelling upon when this is all going to happen. Spending energy on timing just robs us of energy we can spend loving our neighbors. So understanding the end times begins by understanding some things that are commonly taught in the church today. And I just want to cover a couple of things really quickly here this morning. Terms that are used when talking about the end times. So this welcome to Seminary 101 here. Cover this quickly, but this is important because these terms are thrown around and then Christian leaders use these terms to get everybody fired up and ask for your money. So I'm saving you money this morning by not donating to certain causes. Give it to King of Glory. No, I'm kidding. Thing, thing. So end times, issues, and terms. The first one is this, millennium. Maybe you've heard the phrase amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial. Millennium is at the heartbeat of that. Millennium is this a thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. It comes from the book of Revelation, this idea that at some point Jesus is going to reign and the people of God are going to be prosperous. Some take this to be a literal thousand-year reign. Others take this to mean right now. Jesus is reigning in heaven and his church is experiencing goodness here on earth and spreading the gospel here on earth. So millennium can be a, it's the reign of Jesus Christ. It can be a literal thousand years or for some people it's symbolic. It's an important term. We'll get back to it in a second. The next word that's used a lot in our culture is tribulation. This is the span of time usually talked about in seven years when there's going to be an intense period of trial, persecution, and lawlessness. So most of the time it goes like this. The belief that Satan is going to come and take the form of maybe a government, a person, whatever it might be, and when Satan takes that form, then tribulation is just going to escalate really, really fast. For a period of seven years. So again, that's thought by some. The third term that's used only in America. Let me emphasize this. Only in America. Rapture. The term rapture is not found in the Bible. The term rapture comes from really two places in the Bible. The first is in Matthew 24 that we heard earlier today where it says, you'll be walking in the field, someone will be taken up. The second place that it comes is what we read here in 1 Thessalonians 4, where it says Jesus will return and you'll ascend up to the clouds. Rapture was made popular by the book 
left behind in movies, and then Hollywood just jumped on it. Other Christian authors jumped on it, and it's been promoted heavily. Very simply, rapture means the removal of the church from the earth. Some people believe the rapture is at the beginning of the tribulation. Some people believe it's three and a half years in. Some people believe it's at the end of the seven years. Everybody on the same page here. There'll be an exam before we leave. Thing. Then the final one, and the fourth one, the one that might be the most controversial in our, in our country and in our church context is Israel. Israel, for most people, is at the center whenever talking about the end times. But again, Christians, faithful Christians, have two different views. One group of Christians, when you say Israel, they mean an ethnic nation people group that belongs to a specific piece of land in the Middle East the promised land from the Old Testament, and then the Jewish nation that belongs there. Another group of people believes when you say Israel in the New Testament, it's talking about all the people of God, Gentiles and Jews, and it's this people group that encompasses the whole earth. So these are the main four things when talking about the end times that we have to be aware of. I could go into great detail on all of them. I want to be helpful, though, for just a moment and provide my understanding just so you know where I come from, and also at the same time make a major caveat here. Thing, It doesn't bother me, it bothers me a little bit, but it doesn't bother me a lot if we have different viewpoints in the church. Because there's faithful followers of Jesus Christ that come down on vastly different areas of this end time stuff. People that would believe in the authority of God's word, people that would believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the supremacy of Christ, salvation only in Christ, have different understandings of the end times. So what I, when I share my understanding and my perspective of this little portion, I'm sharing with you kind of one option, and I'm going to share some positives and negatives. So I come from the position that says we're living in the millennium right now, that the millennium is a symbolic stage of Jesus Christ reigning in heaven and through his church here on earth. I do not believe that there's going to be a thousand-year prosperous reign of Christianity on earth. So I believe we're in that stage right now. It's only talked about once in the Bible. And one of the reasons I come to this conclusion is that all the places where it talks about Jesus' return, it's a massive event where everything happens, boom, boom, boom. He returns, there's resurrection, there's judgment, and there's establishment of an everlasting kingdom. So I, everywhere I read, it seems to emphasize, hey, when Jesus returns, it's end game. And then new game for eternity, not just a little time of frame, frame of time. So that's my spot, millennium. Tribulation, I take the position that says we're in the tribulation right now. I take the position that says Martin Luther was in the tribulation in the year 1500. I just read a sermon this last week from 1886. And the pastor was preaching and the pastor said, the return of Jesus Christ is imminent because he believed they were in the tribulation. In 1886, they were like, hey, it's getting bad. About the same sermon you could read today. I believe that since Jesus has ascended into heaven, we've been in a time of trial and persecution as the Christians. The first original 12 disciples were all killed for their faith. Just for a moment, I believe, I'm completely speculation here, I believe all 12 would stand up before us and say, uh, yeah, we were in the middle of tribulation thing. We were in the middle of intense persecution. So I believe when Jesus talks about tribulation, it's talking about the general age between his ascension and his return. The rapture, I, I don't believe in the rapture at all. I actually believe the rapture is an extremely dangerous teaching for Christianity. This idea that we escape 
further trial and persecution. I actually see the opposite taught in Scripture. That Jesus does not say, hey, I'm going to get my followers out of the world. He actually prays the opposite. God, keep them in the world, protect them from the evil one, but the emphasis is keep them in it. I kind of use the example of when you talk to first responders. First responders arrive on a scene, a bad scene. Everybody's running that way. The first responders are running to the scene. The followers of Jesus Christ are not to run from evil. They're to run right to it and bless and come in the name of Jesus Christ. Nowhere does Jesus say to his followers, hey, where it's dangerous, don't take the gospel. But the gospel is supposed to go to those places. I believe when the rapture happens, it's not some secretive event that happens at night and somebody wakes up in the morning and goes, where's my kid? Where's my mom? When the rapture happens, everyone's going to know it. And we'll get to that in a second in 1 Thessalonians 4. And then finally, Israel. And this is where, again, I know a lot of us would disagree. I do not believe when it's talking about Israel in the New Testament, it's talking about the nation of Israel in the Middle East. I believe that Gentiles have been grafted into this new people group called Israel. And there is no special land anymore. Because when Jesus Christ returns, that's not going to be big enough. That's not even close to big enough or nice enough. He's going to reestablish the whole earth into a brand new kingdom. He's going to restore it all to perfection. It's not going to be one small little Garden of Eden in the Middle of East. The whole earth is going to be the Garden of Eden. I believe that God's heart is for the Jewish people, as Paul teaches in Romans 9 through 11. But at the same time, God's heart is for the Gentile world, you and I. And we all have the same destination, resurrected perfected bodies. And so, for example, you never hear me say promote anything about Israel in the Middle East. For example, right now, the stuff that's going on in the Middle East. I, am I concerned? Absolutely. But I'm concerned because of justice and peace and well-being of innocent people. I'm not concerned at all because the nation of Israel is under attack. That doesn't bother me one. It just doesn't cause any problems. My heart breaks that innocent children, innocent women, and innocent men are being bombed every single day. And that goes against the justice that I see promoted in the Scriptures. I believe we should stand with Israel when justice is at hand. I believe we should stand with any country when there's justice to be fought for, when there's peace to be fought for. Now again, I say this with this. There's faithful followers of Jesus Christ that completely disagree with me that believe we should do everything we can to protect the literal, physical nation of Israel. So you've got to kind of discern for yourself, look at the Scriptures, and say, where does God want me putting my energy, my time, and my thought? So that's a really quick synopsis of the end times, Seminary 101 in 15 minutes. Now you all know exactly what's going to happen and what the Bible teaches. So the point is this. It's, it's really difficult but these are important terms to understand when you're hearing Christians come out and say things, trying to promote something or encourage something. It all comes back to how you understand these different terminology. So what you get worried about is evidence of, of what you believe. Let's look back here at 1 Thessalonians 4 and try and get some clarity. Those are key terms we need to know. Now I want to try and give us some real clarity on what we should know about the end times. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. Look at this. This is extremely important. 
Paul writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. This is an opening sentence in a new paragraph that Paul's about to start talking about the return of Jesus Christ. This is important because it tells us why Paul is talking about the return of Jesus Christ. Paul's not giving us a systematic understanding or theology regarding the end times. He's what? He's concerned that there are Christians who are walking around hopeless as they lose loved ones. He's concerned that Christians are grieving like the rest of the world. He's concerned that Christians are falling into deep depression because they see no hope. And Paul just wants to remind them, whoa, 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 hold on. You're not like the rest of the world. There's hope for you. And then that's when he goes in to explain why is there hope? There's hope because the Lord will return. Verse 15, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The Lord will return an archangel, a trumpet, the dead in Christ will rise, then we who are alive and left will be caught up together with him in the clouds. Paul's saying, hey, no, 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 this is your hope. Your hope is that Jesus returns. And notice the, the spectacle that's promoted here, a trumpet. When's the last time you heard a quiet trumpet? A trumpet is meant for what? To make an announcement. There's a king coming. There's an event starting. This is not going to be some little trump angel blowing a trumpet kind of over here quietly. Christians gather around. No. This is going to be an angel of heaven declaring the king is here. The king is here, as it says in Philippians 2, every knee is either going to bow or every knee is going to be destroyed. This is not a small event. This is not a quick escape. This is Jesus Christ coming and establishing his kingdom. And notice also, the dead are going to rise. Before we get even taken up to the cloud, and then after the cloud we descend back down, but before it happens to us, what happens? The dead will rise. Do you think that's going to be noticed at all? I mean, when's the Oh, it's just my grandma with a new body up on the cloud. Don't worry about it. Think. Happens every day. Okay, no. Think. This is a big deal. Somebody with a brand new body that's been dead for a hundred or thousands of years is going to be raised up. Their soul is going to come and meet with its new body in the presence of Jesus Christ. This is going to be an event. And I would say this, you don't want to miss it, but you're not going to be able to miss it. Jesus Christ returns. Everyone's going to know it. Everyone's going to experience it. This is our hope, that Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom. One commentator put it this way, and I, I take this because it's written 230 years ago. I think it's important to sometimes look back rather than just the here and now to understand what Scripture is saying, because Scripture has been teaching the same thing through all of history. It says, Paul is not talking about the mass disappearance of Christians from all over the globe. He is talking about the final return of Jesus as conquering king and judge of the living and the dead. This is not Jesus coming for a little sneak attack and get all of his people out, and then he can go to work on everybody that he dislikes. No, this is Jesus coming and establishing a kingdom for eternity and giving new bodies to our loved ones who have passed away before us. This is our hope, that their bodies may be decaying right now, but guess what? That is not the end. That decay does not have the final say. They have a new body awaiting them. 
their soul will return and match that new body. This is our hope. This is where we should put our expectation. This is where we should put our focus. This is where we should put our energy. Jesus Christ is returning, and it is imminent. Whether you live 200 years ago or you live 100 years from now, it's imminent. It could happen at any moment. Therefore, we should be ready at any moment for this hope. I can't speak with authority and clarity on what happens to Israel. I cannot speak with clarity and authority on the timing of the years regarding some tribulation or non-tribulation. I can speak with authority on this. When Jesus Christ comes, everyone's going to know it, and you're going to have a new body if you have faith in Jesus Christ, or if you have passed away and you are resting in the presence of Jesus Christ, you will have a new body for eternity. That's something to hope for. That's confidence to have. And guess what? Nothing that happens today can steal that hope. When I was in high school playing basketball, you know, I was really good, but coach didn't seem to notice it. And so uh, what, what I, the duty that I got relegated to was this. You know you're not good when the coach says, hey, you can skip practice today, and we want you to go and scout our next opponent. So I got in the duty, and I was the captain of the team thing. So I got sent to the teams to scout the next opponent. And I would scout the next opponent, and then we'd come back, and the next day we'd have a little team meeting. And the coach would always have this little moment where he says, rob of their strength. So he said, okay, let's have our rob of their strength moment. Rich, what can we do to rob them of their strength? My job was to go and find out what's their greatest strength. If their greatest strength is shooting three-pointers, what we were going to do as a team was not let them have any open three-pointers, let them drive around us, let them throw it to the big men, but guard the three-point line really tight. Because we knew if we took away their greatest strength, what would we do? We'd discourage them. Not only would we discourage them, we'd also set them up for a loss. Because what? They win when they play to their strengths. We could rob them of their strength and so we could win games. Guess what? No one can rob us of our strength or our hope. Russia can go all around the world. Russia can go into any country it wants. And guess what? It can still not rob us of our hope. There can be lawlessness anywhere and everywhere, but guess what? It cannot rob us of our hope. Cancer may come and steal our flesh, but guess what? It cannot rob us of our hope because it cannot thwart the return of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of our bodies and the resurrection of all who have had faith in Jesus Christ. We can have confidence and we can have calmness because no one can rob us of our hope. So, I believe we are in difficult times. I believe that the Christian church has been in difficult times through, since the ascension of Jesus Christ. We have a unique situation here in America where we're now beginning to experience difficult times that we haven't previously experienced, but other Christians around the world have experienced. So now the question becomes, how can we be calm, confident people of God in the midst of these times? Earlier this week, I was at home with my son and daughter, and my son takes everything out of the kitchen drawers and grabs it. One of the things he loves to grab is the rubber spatula. He grabs the rubber spatula, and then guess what he does with the rubber spatula? Hit his sister. What else do you do with a rubber spatula? So he takes the rubber spatula and just hits his sister. And he's not, he's got a pretty good 
swat on him for a small man. I mean, he's got my strength. But anyhow, think. So he takes the right strength, he just hits his sister. Guess what doesn't work? It doesn't work to say, hey, he's just a baby. He doesn't know any different. Just let him hit you. Okay. No, you don't say just let him hit you. Just because it's a baby and doesn't know any different, you still don't let the rubber spatula damage you. Guess what? The rubber spatula is alive and well in America and around the world against Christianity. The question is, how are we going to respond to the rubber spatula? Are we going to say, eh, it's just the end times. God's ordained it to happen. Suck it up and put up with it. I believe that God would say, fight. How do we fight when the rubber spatula comes out? You have to come back next week to hear about that. Let's pray together. Father God, I'm just a mere small brain, little understanding. We are all finite, Lord. So we come before you this morning humbly, asking that you would grant us wisdom. Correct us where we need correcting. Shape us where we need shaping. And Lord, above all, I pray that you would keep us focused on the hope that you've given to us in the return of Jesus Christ. So God, this morning I pray for anyone that's being burdened with circumstances in life. I pray for anyone that is spending time worrying about the events going on in the world. God, I pray that today there'd be a miraculous intervention. I pray that today, O Lord, you could turn all of our thoughts to our hope. I pray that today, O Lord, you would enable and empower us to be confident and calm as your people. God, I pray that you would be honored today in how we handle ourselves during this time. Give us wisdom as we prepare to talk about how to respond to evil. We pray that you would guide our conversation. We pray that above all, O Lord, today, you would capture our hearts with your hope. Thank you for what you have done. Thank you for what you have promised to do. In Jesus' name, amen.